Welcome back. It's episode 42 of Canberra Conversations. And today we are talking about how to own the world and starting investing. To do so, we are joined by Andrew Craig, investment banker from the City of London, an author and a fund manager. In terms of Andrew's previous books, his first book, How to Own the World, had a profound effect when I read it in May of this year on my approach to my lifestyle. And it sits within the top three books that have the most impact on anything that I've done and read in the last few years alongside much mentioned Atomic Habits. Andrew's book was recommended to me by previous podcast guests Justin Wilkins and Aaron Knightley and for that I'm forever grateful. Andrew's approach is all about plain English finance and in fact that is his website address and that effectively means that throughout this episode we are going to explain how busy professionals, busy individuals, basically the demographic that listens to this podcast can manage their money as best as possible and work towards financial comfort and freedom in future years against the backdrop of pretty challenging economic uncertainty, as many of us will be aware of from previous episodes. This one is genuinely jam-packed with actionable value that many of us need to hear if we do hold in aspirations of being financially free in the future. I don't want to witter on because there's so much within this one. I do suggest that you have a pen and paper ready and that you share this with any friends that you ever talk about finances, money, or aspirations with. Without any further ado, let's dive headfirst into this one. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of Canberra Conversations. And today's conversation is all about money management and how to own the world. In order to do that, we are joined by Andrew Craig. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's genuinely always an honor to do these, even if it is Saturday morning. Yeah, commitment to the cause. The, the people behind, um, behind the kind of podcast, there is an element of sacrifice putting in the, the hours either after work on, a, on an evening or on a, on a weekend. So we're very appreciative of your, of your time, Andrew. So for the listeners' background, I read your first book, How to Own the World, um, in, in May. And many people that follow me on Instagram will know that I've uh, been putting the swipe ups to, for them to purchase it on Amazon. And we've got a little tribe of people who have all been really impacted by the book. However, there'll be hundreds of people that listen to this that haven't read your book so far. Can you give us a little bit of a background on you, Andrew? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. So um, I, I'm, I suppose one, I'm one of those evil, scaly skin city stockbrokers. So I started my career in the late 90s. I did economics at uni. Um, I actually went off to Washington, D.C. to be an intern um, in American politics and then kind of decided that, I mean, basically, if you're British and you want a decent job in, in Washington, it's, it's a bit of a struggle uh, to, you know, there's a real glass ceiling because Americans probably quite rightly tend to get the bigger job. So I realized that, came back, started working for what was then Swiss Bank in the late 90s. And um, over the, so I guess that's, what's that, 22 years ago. Um, and over that time, I've worked for a few different investment banks, basically the, the Swiss, the Swedes and the French um, in London and for a couple of years in New York. Um, and then about God, 10 years, yeah, 2010, I kind of, I was living in New York and I sort of thought, you know, wrong city, wrong job. I had a bit of a, uh, well, a bit, a bit earlier than a midlife crisis because uh, I was, what was uh, my, my mid thirties then. And um, just decided to take some time out and, and it's a bit of a long story, but I, I just bought the URL, plainenglishfinance.com. I had, I'd long had this idea that 
one of the biggest challenges for people with finance, which seems really obvious, but you know, quite often the most obvious ideas are actually quite important ideas, is that people are incredibly financially illiterate. And you know, even people at leading investment banks, um, amazingly enough, when it comes to, they might be amazing at credit derivatives or trading the stock market, but when it comes to their ISA and their pension, they're hopeless. I mean, <laughs> I can, or, or a lot of them are anyway, some of them aren't. But, um, and so I had this idea because I'd, I'd been involved with a few um, internet companies and kind of learned about online advertising and the fact that you could do affiliate marketing, all those things, quite, probably quite early in, in the development of those sorts of things. And so I thought, right, well, I'll, what I'll do, naive, you know, me in my early 30s or mid-30s, whenever it was, sort of thought, I'll, uh, I'll launch this website. I'll put a bunch of really useful content up there to sort of educate people about finance and financial markets. And then I have loads of uh, affiliate marketing revenues. And, and I, um, the reason the book came about is that I'd basically managed to write about 100,000 words worth of sort of, you know, angry young man. This is, let me tell you about gold. Let me tell you about inflation. <clears throat> let me tell you about the stock market. You know, it was all pouring out of me. It was quite fun, actually, because I, I took a bit of time off, you know, out of work and i was and for living you. in i was living in what's that an outlet for you for, uh, for your rage and your information yeah well that's right well it was quite i was i actually went and lived with a, a good mate of mine who was based in tokyo for a few months and then spent a lot of time traveling around australia sort of with the stuff pouring out of my laptop in you know youth hostels so it's quite it was quite cool it's kind of living the dream and then um i realized i put a hundred thousand words up on a website and it was like click here to go to the next page and it was actually my cousin mary who said to me look you know, nobody wants to read like 3,000 words on a screen and then click to the next one to read another 3,000 words. Why don't you, why isn't this a book? And so <clears throat> a bit of a long story, but happily, my brother's best man, who's a really good family friend, who's now the COO of Plainless Finance, a guy called Tim Peacock, was a, basically he's quite a talented graphic designer and just said, yeah, I can typeset this up and get it off on Kindle. And then we figured out you could self-publish, you know, the Amazon do a print on demand thing. So the first edition, which, um, Bear with me one sec. It was a really, really ugly um, homebrew. I mean, we laugh at it now. We were so proud of it 10 years ago. But um, yeah, that, that came out in September 12 and then as an ebook um, on Kindle. And then uh, as a, we figured out how to get it as a print on demand, you know, that book um, in January 13. And quite quickly, lots of people had bought it and sort of posted quite nice um, reviews on Amazon. And so then, uh, uh, over the what the, the story then is basically we did a second edition in 2015 where we actually paid a, an ex-penguin uh, non-fiction team to do it properly with like a, an index and you know so it was a much more uh, professional product looked like a proper book and then yeah. two years ago um, one of the biggest publishers in the world which is um, uh, Hachette or Hodder and Stoughton um, so that you know the same publisher as Charles Darwin and JK Rowling and people like that. It, Andrew you've made it yeah, well exactly they, they they approached and said we like we like the look of your book uh, how about a proper deal with a proper publisher and so that was the third edition which is the, the edition that you've read um and that came out in march of uh 19 or 18 god i've lost track now but um and sort of it's just carried on powering along so yeah sorry that's a that's a bit of a long preamble but that's that's how the book came about no, but some of the key things to draw out of that is first of all the url that you chose plain english finance and that is exactly what people like myself and the people that listen to this podcast want with regards to their finance. Yeah. We, we all want to be successful. We want to make lots of money in the careers or businesses that we work in, but we also want to know that 
down the line that our investments and the choices that we've made are going to enable us to live the lifestyle that we want to or support our family, our friends, whatever the, the, the MO is, that is where we want to end up. And that's what attracted me to the book and made me so keen to get you to speak to my audience because ultimately like you say, the vast majority of us are completely financially illiterate. After reading the book, I'm, I'm in a much better place. And I've read a couple of subsequent books off the back of it um, that have been helpful as well, as well as um, consuming some of the stuff from your email list, which again, you recommend a number of different articles through that as well. So you can, you can always invest more time in it. But ultimately, even just investing the, the few weeks that it took me to read a chapter after work each night put me in a much better position with yeah. what I was doing already. And, and that's where the attraction comes. That's right. And, and I think one of the, it's one of those weird ones where it seems like such a frightening, massive, you know, it seems like to be really good at this stuff, you need to have like a PhD in all this, you know, bond markets and equity valuation. And, you know, you can do that, but, but actually getting sort of, you know, it's the 80, 20 rule. You get 80% of your outcomes from 20% of your efforts, right? Whether that's learning a language or, you know, whatever it is, you know, most languages, we only use about 2,000 of maybe 80,000 words. There's like 99% of our, comp so if you want to learn a foreign language, you only really need to learn those 2,000 words, not the 80,000 words. And the same insight is relevant to business and it's particularly relevant to finance. And I suppose the, the, my insight, if you like, which I try to articulate as, as, as simply as possible in that book is that, you know, with relatively little effort and setting up something that's really quite commonsensical, you will make a massive difference to your outcomes financially. And when I say massive difference, I mean, Eve, I always, you know this because you read the book, but early in the book, I show how somebody even on the average British wage, which is roughly, depends what year and who you ask, but it's sort of anywhere between 25 and 30,000 pounds a year. So we'll call it 27, 28. Somebody on that wage who manages to save a, a, a reasonable, you know, a, 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 sorry, I mean, I always talk about 10%, but roughly 10% of their income each month they can realistically aspire to being a millionaire by the time they retire. And that's just a message that isn't, you know, it does take many years. It's not going to take three years, but, but the, you know, life goes, I'm 45 and my being 25 seems like yesterday to me, you know, life goes by pretty fast. And so just some very, very simple kind of universal rules about what is the stock market and how do I open a fund account and all these, you know, what's an ISA and not a cash ISA, which is the worst product known to man, you know, which sadly, you know, billions of pounds worth of British investment money is in cash ISAs because people don't understand these fundamental things. So my point is both that it's, it's, it's not, it's kind of simple, even if it isn't necessarily easy, but it's simple to get to a level that makes a really big difference. And, that, and then the other point I wanted to stress is, the difference isn't like tens of grand. You know, the difference is becoming somebody who's worth seven figures versus struggling in retirement like most British people do. And, it's, and it is actually something of a national scandal that this information, this, these basic principles that, are, you know, most of them are 200 years old, right? We've had 200 years to educate the population about this stuff and governments don't do it and schools don't do it. And it's, you know, it's, there's a very small percentage of the population that understand this stuff. And that's, if you like my crusade with planning English finances to try and change that. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a noble mission and a noble cause. And uh, equally, it still requires a little bit of investment and time from people yeah. who want to hear it. And that's the challenge, particularly if it's not built into the curriculum within schools, people then have to seek it. And I had to stumble across your book. I had to take the time to read it. I then had to take the time to action it because many of the listeners will be laughing at this point we have some brilliant guests on who have read 
multiple books, they recommend lots of different sources. You can do the same and read all these sources and borrow all this knowledge, but you have to action that knowledge. And that's what, that's what I'm going to compel people to do as, as we go through this to, to really take action on some of the principles that we're, we're exploring. But also on that note, we'll use the disclaimer at this point that none of what we discussed during this episode will be financial advice that people should um, take as verbatim. Yeah, so, so that's right. So, so for the benefit of your audience, so I'm, I'm, I run an FCA regulated company and I'm an FCA regulated individual, um, which means there are incredibly strict rules about, you know, specifically about giving personal investment advice. So nobody should ever think that at the end of this, that I am saying to you, you know, whomever it is in your audience, you should definitely do this and buy this fund. But what, what I can do is speak in general terms. And a lie to that, a really important point I wanted to make, which is a bit of a sort of paradox when people start thinking about finance. One of the tragedies of particularly, um, you know, millennials, people a bit, maybe a bit younger than me, but people my age as well, people in their 20s and 30s is, they tend to suddenly think, I've got to sort this finance thing out, right? And then, and then they go, what I teach is the sort of how you invest a little bit every month for the rest of your life. Really boring, like slow, long-term, old school, right? And what tends to happen a lot with people, particularly, you know, without wanting to be rude about young people, that's not what I'm trying to do, but it's just a fact because they're much more, you know, internet savvy and social media literate and, and, they're, and they're plugged into all these, you know, trading groups and stuff is that people tend to go straight to, I, my analogy here is this is a bit like having a white belt in karate or judo and immediately going to fight black belts. So people tend to go straight past, like they go, oh, I want to get into finance. I want to learn about trading and stock market stuff. And before they've ever even figured out the nuts and bolts of all the stuff we teach, which is basically saving a bit every month into an ISA, using sensible stock market investments and gold and you know the stuff that rich smart people have been doing for 200 years or more right ever since these markets were in, invented they go straight through that they don't do any of that and they immediately go to like crypto trading groups and fx trading groups and spread betting and trying to call the markets and should i buy should i buy tesla today and should i be shorting you know this or should i buy this? and that is as tragic as not doing anything at all because for 90 percent plus people you will never win in that game, truly. Like, it, you need to be, you need to be, or at the very least, in order to get good at that and succeed at it consistently, that is a really big job. That is really, really hard. And so what I see, particularly with crypto in the last few years, is just the tragedy of all these people who've never bought an ISA, don't know what the FTSE is, don't know what the S&P is, haven't done the sort of, if you like, the, the GCSEs or the A-levels or hires in your, or, you know, whatever, and they've gone straight to trying to do PhD level stuff. And funnily enough, a lot of them get burnt. And so, you know, so to be very, both in terms of the disclaimer about not giving financial advice, but I also, you know, a really important part of my message, which is a really key point of differentiation from what we do at Plain English Finance to what, you know, most of the other stuff about finance and trading people will see on their, on their social media feeds is, I've got no interest in trading or teaching. To me, everyone should be an investor yep. only very few people should be a trader and the other the final point to make on that is that part of the reason for that is trading takes a hell of a lot of time it really does don't believe anybody says oh you can do it in five minutes a day you might be able to do it they might be able to do it in five minutes a day because they've been doing it for 20 years you're not going to be able to do it in five minutes a day you're certainly not going to be able to do it well and to be clear i've traded a fair bit in my career you know i've done 22 years in the city I've had five of those 22 years where I've not actually had to work. I've been out writing books and doing other entrepreneurial things yep. where I had a lot of time to sit in front of screens and sort of get long of this and short of that and whatever else. 
with quite some success because I worked in the city, because I've got an economics degree, et cetera, et cetera, because I had time on my hands. I now have two small children and two full-time jobs and I don't do any trading because the ROI on the hours spent looking at screens and trying to work this and that out is, and I've got capital, you know, this is the other point. Yeah. To really make a success of trading, and I would include crypto in this, uh, in the same kind of basket, you really need a pretty large amount of money in order to be able to make absolute returns, as in thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pounds, that actually make a difference to your life versus the amount of hours you're going to put in. And so one of the biggest rookie mistakes I see that makes me, actually really kind of makes my blood boil, is people who've maybe got three grand of savings after working really hard, you know, which... Frankly, if you're 28 and you've got three grand of savings, well done. That's a pretty good starter for 10 for lots of people or five grand or whatever. And, and instead of learning the nuts and bolts, the sort of stuff we teach, they go straight to some crypto group because somebody told them that Bitcoin's going to a million dollars and they can't lose. And, and the next thing they know, they've blown it all up. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe it's good to do that in your late twenties because you lose less money in absolute terms. The real tragedy is a 60 year old who's got 800 grand after a lifetime of hating their job as an accountant or a surveyor or you know whatever and they're finally near the finishing line and then they and then they get sucked into some trading group and lose 60 grand or you know and i've seen a lot of that in the last few years so sorry that's a, again i'm i told you before we started the interview that to shut me up if i talk too much but that yeah, is there's well, a really I'll, let you, I'll let you go when you're when you're giving us the good stuff andrew so <laughs> there's there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of different things that we'll pull out from that first of all you speak about the younger generation perhaps being more social media literate, but also we're consuming a lot more of that. So there's a lot more opportunity for us to fall foul of that. I want the instant gratification. And one of the key themes that we've spoken about many times in the podcast is delayed gratification. And your model is exactly that when it comes to uh, saving a particular percentage of your income each month, it going into a fairly passive investment that we don't have to look at. We don't have to wheel and deal. We don't have to go in and check always up. 3% 3% this month or is up 4%. It doesn't fucking matter. Excuse my French. And it's much, much better that we, particularly as busy professionals, and you're speaking about time. So many people that listen to the podcast are very into their fitness, but they want to invest the minimum amount of time in their fitness and go to the gym the minimum time of times a week and do the most effective exercises. Minimum, have- minimum effective dose. Per, have, you, have you read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Body? four hour work week i've read i've not read the four hour body he's got a book called the four hour body which is specifically about the same sort of methodology applied to fitness and the gym and and nutrition and it's fantastic it's i mean it's every bit as good as the four hour work week and uh he's the opening chapter is med minimum effective dose and it's the same in fitness it's the same in finance so we're, we're very aligned philosophically on that exactly that and i think so many of the listeners will resonate with oh so you mean that i don't have to go in and check how the footsie's yeah. doing against the, the dollar because w- many of the listeners that are tuned into this will be the same listeners that like the Forex episode where we're effectively told that if you want to win in this game, be prepared to invest months reading this particular like free website and then to dummy trade for months and months and months. So you're making no money during that period. So you might as well have passive investments in the background like your approach that, that, we, that we're going to yeah. discuss and put us in a much better position. The first thing I want to touch on, and again, this has been a theme that we have covered in the podcast, but why do we need to think about money management? What is the, the economic reality that we face in the Western world? Well, there's a whole load of things to unpack there. And the, the first of which is to let, let's just deal with one of the most unhelpful phrases in history that, you know, money is the root of all evil or money being rich doesn't make you happy. Total bollocks. Right. Let's be clear. Pardon my French. Right. It, you know, 
if you are an inherently negative, pessimistic, unhappy person, you know, if you if you throw loads of money at that person, they will probably carry on with that, particularly if they have addiction problems like booze and coke and whatever else, right? But money gives you enormous freedom. Ultimately, that's what it is, right? It gives you peace of mind, it gives you security, and it gives you freedom to do what you want to do with whom you want to do it. You know, and it's not about Ferraris and Lamborghinis and, you know, what all that models and bottles and champagne and clubs. I mean, it can be about that if you want it to be. Um, but, but to me, you know, why is it important? Because there's nothing better in life than just being comfortable and secure. And, you know, knowing that, for example, if you lost your job tomorrow, you'd be fine for like several years. Right. I mean, that and that is a very whilst you think about what would I like to do? Maybe you do some more education, maybe you completely change your career, you know, so the quicker you can get into that situation, the quicker life becomes a whole of a lot less stressful. You know, ultimately, what I'm trying to achieve is that people are happier. It's that, it's that, you know, people are happy, they reduce their stress levels, they're able to take care of their children or, or their parents if they're elderly and infirm or, you know. So that's why it's really important. Why is it, I suppose, I think your question was more, it was less that sort of philosophical thing. It was more dri driven towards, in this day and age, why is it more important than it's ever been? And, you know, I think, you know, you've obviously sent me a sort of um, proposed agenda here. And, and I guess that attends the inflation situation. And yeah. the reason it's never been more important is because the actions of central banks and governments, basically since the early 70s, mean that money, as most people understand it, so pounds or dollars or euros or yen or Swiss francs or Australian dollars or whatever else, fiat currency has never been a less useful yardstick with which to measure your real wealth than ever before in history, right? And so if you, now this starts to sound slightly complicated, but it's actually really not that complicated, as you know, because you've read the book. But basically, if you're measuring your, your forward progress in pounds, you're kind of using an elastic ruler, and you're not really... Sorry, Siri, Siri just... Siri wants involved I, in the debate. Sorry, Siri's in the background <laughs> thinking that I'm talking to her. I love it when that happens. It's kind of freaky. Um, so really, you know, if you want through your life to build real wealth so that you can have all those lovely things I talked about earlier, peace of mind, security, the ability to look after your loved ones, um, which is more important than Ferraris and Lamborghinis, but you can have those two in the fullness of time if you want to. Um, you know, you need to really, really understand the, the sort of economic system. And, and again, this is not PhD stuff. This is, you know, this is anyone who's vaguely intelligent and articulate and bothered to, can read a book or two can figure this out. But it, it, you know, why is the S&P 500 at all at, at 3,300? It's like at all, when there's this US election carbuncle and riots in the street and, you know, the, the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street at the moment. UK, UK house prices are still at all time highs. Yeah. How can that possibly be when we're potentially going to have like 12 million unemployed people because of the coronavirus and, you know, this tidal wave of, of, of uh, redundancies that's going to happen and it's, it's, it's horrible, right? But yet financial markets are amazing and gold's at an all-time high. And, but, you know, people need to understand why that is. And that's why it's, you know, a lot of the sort of conventional wisdoms around money and finance are just completely 180 degrees wrong. Like cash is king. Like, oh, the stock market's risky, cash is king. Well, no, because, the, because when, when cash is being rapidly devalued by the actions of stupid governments and, and central banks, Cash isn't king. Cash is a, is a one-way one ticket to losing your real wealth. So cash ices are a disaster. And why is the stock market at, at such high levels? Because it's denominated in cash that's falling in value. Yeah. And, and that, so people, you know, I see so many talking heads and self-proclaimed financial experts going, oh, you know, 
there's going to be a massive crash because of all the debt and the stock market. They've been saying that for five, six, seven years, right? Ever since the S&P got to 1,000. No, it's the opposite. The more debt there is, the more likely it is that the stock market is going to go up because, it, because you know, that's the other side of the, the liabilities and the assets. So, that, you know, that's beginning to perhaps veer a little bit complicated. But, I mean, I'd, li I'd like to think that my book sets this stuff out. How many hours it takes to read, by the end of it, you kind of understand most of this stuff. And enough to take simple appropriate action to protect yourself against this yeah there was times that i read the book where it is quite a sharp jolt to your system when you realize that the percentage increases you get in your salary each year or the the kind of increases you get from i don't know perhaps selling a product you realize that actually that's pretty much the same as it was or less than it was last year just due to the the way the the, the currency that we're trading in actually yeah. is going and well, that's, that's, so, so, to, so talk about property for example is one of the areas that people really really don't get and renting versus buying and particularly you know your age group nowadays again i don't want to sound patronizing but what a bastard it is trying to get on the property ladder right because yeah. because the multiple of salaries for all, all these this is all part of the same thing has, has never been higher and never been more difficult so you know to you've got to you've got to understand the sort of real nuts and bolts of why that's happening and, and what to do about it, I guess. Yeah, ex exactly that. And we've spoken on the podcast about quantitative easing before, and that leads into the discussion around in inflation. So I guess that will obviously something that you cover at length in the book, but I guess for the listeners as a, a bit of a taster as to what inflation actually means in real terms, could you go in on that for me, please, Andrew? Yeah. So, I mean, so, the first thing to say is that the RPI and CPI numbers that are published by authorities in both sides of the Atlantic are, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit excessive to say they're a complete nonsense, but they're just not particularly useful because, you know, inflation is actually a very personal thing. It depends on what you buy. Um, and, but what, what is true, and this is not a conspiracy theory, and you know I set this out in the book, is that the way that the governments calculate these things is intentionally intended to make them look optically lower than the real life experience of most people in the street, right? Um, and so, and I mean, to, without wanting to bore everyone, there are three broad ways they do that, which is um, something called substitution. So that's basically inflation is calculated from a basket of goods. So you'd think they'd use roughly the same basket each year to compare, but they don't. So now, there are, there are reasons why they shouldn't because certain things, you know, you probably don't want to have digital cameras in there anymore because nobody owns a digital camera. And we, so you have to change the basket. But it's also because of that, it's pretty easy for the authorities to go, hmm, you know, Atlantic cod is three times the price it was last year because there aren't any fish left in the North Atlantic. Um, so that's a bit inconvenient. Let's take it. There's a lot of farm salmon knocking around, though. So let's take let's take cod out of the calculation, put salmon in. And then salmon, actually, there's a whole load of farm salmon. Salmon prices have actually gone down because it's not wild salmon, it's farm salmon. So that, that makes the inflation calculation, it brings it down, right? You can, rep I mean, there's a sort of old school economist who jokes that eventually they'll replace steak with dog food. You know, it's the same. So, so substitution is huge. Um, there's a thing called geometric weighting. And the idea there is that basically when you calculate inflation, you should, you know, if healthcare, healthcare is 17% of the US economy of GDP, right? It's only 6% of the inflation calculation. So that, that is, which is a complete piss take because healthcare inflation is running at double digits. It's like 12, 14, 17% for cancer drugs or, you know, Zimmer frames or, or you know, nursing homes or because of an aging population, a big demographic bulge, 
Healthcare is getting more and more expensive. That's very inconvenient for the inflation calculation because it's going to ramp up the real number. So what do they do? They only include it at 6% of the calculation when it's 17%. But the trickiest, most tricksome one, which is used to adjust roughly half of the inflation calculation on both sides of the Atlantic, is a thing called hedonic adjustment, which is, so now, yeah, we're getting a bit technical, so I hope everyone's not disappeared and gone to sleep. But basically, um, hedonic adjustment is where the inflation calculation, the, the statisticians say, this thing is subjectively better this year than it was last year. And therefore, even though it's the same price, we're going to say it's 20% better. And therefore, if it's a thousand quid something, we'll put it in as 800 quid. So flat screen TVs is the example I use in the book. So if you're Samsung or Sony 55 inch flat screen TV, last year, it's, it's you know, this ZX 55P, ZP or whatever, Sony and Samsung bewildering, you know, nomenclature. And this year, it's basically exactly the same product, right? Last year, it was a thousand quid. This year, it's the new one, it's a thousand quid, but it's got a Facebook button on the remote control or it's yeah. got, you know, it's got some, you can go straight to Netflix or whatever. And, the, and rather than say TVs are still a thousand quid, the statisticians say, mm, this TV is 20% better because of that. So, and they put it in as 800 quid, which hoiks the inflation number down. So that's why you've got inflation numbers running at like, one two percent or whatever all over the world but every single stock market in the world or most stock markets are near at or near all-time highs singapore zurich sydney melbourne london vancouver you know stockholm paris all property markets at or near all-time highs i don't know what your experience is in glasgow buying a pint of beer but mine in london is that it's like five times what i paid when i was at university 20 years ago right literally i mean it's like a fiver instead of a pound um and, 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 and so, so, so the, uh, the point I, I sort of lost my thread earlier and I was going to go on about property is that when, when people say, oh, property only ever goes up. And so, you know, you've got to understand the difference between nominal and real. So if your property has doubled in price, but everything else has doubled in price, including everything, including all the other property, have you increased your real wealth? You've still only got one nice house that's worth whatever it's worth. To come in and on that is, property element, Andrew. If I yeah. sell my property, which is doubled from 200,000 to 400,000, yeah. everything else that I'm looking to buy is doubled as well. I'm in the same position I was when I bought the 200,000 exactly. house. And the, only, and the only way you can monetize that, now let's be clear, there have been plenty of markets where property has, in, the real increase in the value of property is real, particularly central London, for example. I mean, I live in southwest London and it's, there's no question. I mean, that, that's because of a cascade of billion, you know, when my dad bought a house in southwest London in 1984, Russia and China were communist countries and the only people that might compete with him to buy that house were embassy staff, like literally, right? A few dozen people that were working for the Chinese embassy or the Russian embassy. Now there's literally thousands of millionaires and billionaires. And so that's just a sort of what, what economists call an exogenous shock, but it's been a very, very long, strong and durable exogenous shock because every rich Syrian, every rich Libyan, every rich, you know, every rich anyone from anywhere basically wants their kids to go to a British university and a British school and li maybe live in London. And there's a very fixed tight supply. The thing I missed in the first edition of the book on that, though, is the cascade effect, because I thought, well, that only really is relevant to affluent bits, you know, Mayfair, Knightsbridge, central London, Chelsea. Same it's not course. because, you know, if you've got a 70 year old British couple who bought their house for 800 grand in 1990 and sell it for 18 million quid. And they've got three adult kids. Each of those kids gets bunged a five million pound inheritance. And even if they're, you know, work in a shop or at a charity or something, they get, you know, Arabella and Lucas and Lucy, 
trot, trot off to go and spend five million quid as cash buyers on a property a little bit out of central London. And that money cascades out to the black cab driver who used to own that property who now moves to Kent and on and on and on. Right. And, and that, you know, in, in Scotland, Edinburgh is obviously an incredibly uh, financial services oriented economy. So there's, you know, we all know what's happened to prices of property in a place like Murrayfield and that money will have yeah. cascaded out into Scotland. But I know that I'm rambling, but just one other point to make, um, and this comes to the elastic ruler point I made earlier is, so if you bought a 1 million pound property in the UK 10 years ago, that was a 2 million US dollar property because the pound was worth $2, right? So you bought a $2 million property. Now, if you sell that, let's just assume it's, you can still get a million pounds just to keep the maths easy. It's a $1.3 million property. So in dollar terms, you've lost $700,000. Do you know a single estate agent who understands that nuance? I don't, you know, and frankly, most journalists, right? So why is that important? People go, that doesn't matter because I live in England and I'm dealing, or Scotland and I'm dealing with pounds. No, it doesn't matter because oil, cotton, coffee, rice, shares, everything, cars, everything, you know, something like 70% of the world's tradable goods are traded in dollars. So if you're 35% poorer in dollar terms, all I'm saying is you, you need to be aware of these differences and not uh, because that's what's called money illusion is thinking, well, my property is still worth whatever. And that's why you've got to, that's why it's important to own the world is the, you know, the name of the book, because you've got to think globally and you've got to think about purchasing power parity and relative wealth, which is easier than it sounds. I guess yeah. is my point. Don't worry about thinking you're rambling, Andrew. I found a lot of value in that. And I'm sure the listeners would have, would have done so as well. However, what we will do is we will go in now because we've really very much built the case of why we need to own the world and, and, and what we need to do. Let's talk now about how, and where is the best place to start? I'm a, let's say it's a few years ago for me. I'm, I'm, I'm 25. I've finished university. I've got my first job. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. earning decent enough money. What on earth am I doing with my finances? Yeah. So the, the one of the maxims I use, which probably makes personal finance journal, journalists scoff at me for being an idiot. Um, but I, I hold fast to is financial success in what I'm talking about, which is long-term investment. So that you have a million quid by the time you're, I don't know, 50 or 55 or however long it takes. It depends how much you earn and how you go and stuff. But, it's a very, very real target to become a, to have a seven figure sum in your uh, net worth. It sort of basically it takes 20 to 30 years if you know your ass from your elbow and if you save roughly 10%. And when I talk about achieving that goal, I say that it's 90% admin and 10% asset selection. Like the admin bit, to your point earlier about the difference between taking action and not taking action. If you take action and set up some pretty simple stuff, and just forget about it and don't tamper with it and let it roll based on some principles that have worked frankly for not far off 200 years this will happen right and people tie themselves up in knots and they go off down rabbit blind alleys of you know learning about crypto and trying to trade cardano and ether and bitcoin and when they and they bypass the we in britain we have an amazing advantage over nearly every other country in the world including the developed countries we have these accounts like ISAs, you know, like because Britain was the, the uh, Britain and Holland basically were the world leaders in, and, the, and the, the Medici's in Italy, they developed the bond market, but broadly Britain and Holland developed financial markets, you know, 200, a little bit over 200 years ago, shares being the main thing. And because of that innovation, we're massively ahead of the pack, right? It, it, most, I mean, Germany has a really quite underdeveloped financial services industry that my German friends would probably 
not agree with that statement. But I mean, to me, to me, we have a very sophisticated financial services um, uh, system and, and um, world ecosystem in the UK. So uh, if I may be a little bit commercial, um, you know, that's my recent book, right? Yep. And this, this one, so live on less, invest the rest. The idea there is that how to own the world was kind of the, the theory, if you like, right? And it's sort of um, all the big picture stuff we just talked about. This kind of dovetails neatly with your question. So th this one is more about, okay, what do I actually do? And so the admin you need to do is that you basically, that one of the easiest rules of thumb, which is, a, again, these are all ideas that have been around for decades, is this idea of 100 minus your age, okay? And 100 minus your age is just that basically, originally it was, it, it, let's say, so let's say you're 30, 100 minus your age, 70. 70 is the rough percentage of your assets that you might invest in aggressive investments. So higher risk, potentially higher reward, and 30% in defensive. If you're 70, it's the other way around, right? So if you're 70, 100 minus your age, 30% aggressive, 70% defensive. And the reason for that is because if you're 30, and you've got 10, let's say you've managed to accrue 10 grand, just for the sake of one, by, by the time, by the, your 30th birthday, you've managed to save 10 grand in your 20s. Now, if, you're, if you've got in Bitcoin and a tech fund and a biotech fund, and all these like scary, risky things, and you have a shocker like 2008 or um, December 17 for Bitcoin, right, where something falls 50%, you've gone from 10 grand to five grand, which is a, a bit of a bitch, but you know, it's only five grand. <laughs> The counter is, is actually only five grand and you've still got 30 years or more left until you want to retire. Yeah. Now imagine the same situation for somebody who's 60 and they have a million quid because they've been lucky enough to be a lawyer or whatever and they've saved diligently and they've got a million quid on the 60th birthday. The same thing happens to them because they have the same asset allocation. They've just lost 500 grand. Okay. So one, they've lost 500 grand, which is, you know, suicide inducing potentially <laughs> depends on your personality but not ideal right especially when you want to retire and look after your family and whatever else and two you haven't got 30 years to sort it out again and you probably would rather be retiring and not earning money so that's why that's why the idea of 100 minus your age so that's the, the first prism through through which i we sort of educate people to think about their money yep and one and then the only other question left really is okay so if I've established that rough, and this is, these are rough rules of thumb. These aren't like hard set rules, it's just roughly. Um, it, what, it, what is an aggressive asset and what is a defensive asset? And that doesn't take, you know, that's, that's lots of suggestions in here as to what, what they could be. And so then the, the next thing is it, brass tacks, save 10% at the, from the minute you get paid, whether you get paid daily, weekly, monthly, annually, whatever, right? everything you earn calibrate your life in terms of property and how much you spend on getting pissed and you know or clothes or whatever it might be calibrate your life so you can save 10 percent of whatever you earn over whichever time period you earn it and ideally pay that 10 percent every month into those aggressive and defensive assets and the final point is make use of an isa account in the first instance because Every gain, all the gains you make in an ISA account are free of tax. So what my aspiration for our audience, especially people who do start at 25 or 28 or 32 or whatever, is that by the time they're a little bit older than me, maybe mid fifties, depending on how much they earn and how much they commit, that they should aspire to having basically seven figures in their ISA. Yeah. Right. And, and that, then you can take it out tax free. 
And now pensions is a separate thing. Pensions are much more complicated. And in a perfect world, if you have a job with a conventional employer, you should have a pension with them and calibrate your pension in a sensible way. And then have 10% of, of your money going into an ISA and calibrate that in a sensible way. And that is, once you've done that, you only have to look at it once every five years, right? You've That's the, the admin boxes. point. Yeah, you've ticked the basic box of the admin point. And just to clarify, we spoke right at the start, cash ISAs are, are not what you're talking about here. Cash ISA is what I use to save from my property, my deposit. But what I, what I now have off the back of the book, or well, actually it would have been a couple of years previous to that, but I now understand why I've got it, um, is, a, is, is a hard squeeze Lansdowne or a Vanguard um, for an ISA with them. Yeah, I mean, you can use, so again, this is a bit of a, this causes confusion. So, you know, Hargreaves Lansdowne, Interactive Investor, AJ Bell, you invest as a Scottish firm, actually. Um, yeah. the, those are all fund supermarkets. They're, 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 they used to be called stockbrokers, right? I mean, they still, they still are. But Barclays Stockbrokers is another one. They, that's a bit like Tesco, Sainsbury's or Waitrose, right? As in, it's the shop that you can walk into. And in Tesco, Sainsbury's or Waitrose, there are thousands and thousands of products that you can elect to buy, right? Based on your own choices. And in the same way, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, Interactive Investor and AJ Bell, when you go on their websites, there are thousands and thousands of funds you can buy. Um, uh, whereas Vanguard's a little bit different because Vanguard, whilst they have ISA and pension accounts, only offer their own funds. So that's a bit like buying from the farm, I suppose, would be the, you know, yeah. You can only get pigs or, or you know, whatever it is. So um, that's a terrible analogy. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll try better next time. Um, but anyway, I think people get the point. So, yeah, you, it doesn't really matter that much which one you use as long as they're big and they have a great website. I mean, I've got accounts with Ransdown well. and Interactive Investor um, for different kind of pots. But, yeah, so it's just it's setting up a cascade of accounts that, to me, particularly for young people, starts with an ISA. Um, and you know, but as I said earlier, if you have a pension with your employer, you can, you can pretty quickly, most people have a pension with their employer. They've got no idea what it is, what it's invested in, how much is going in there, what to do about it. That's, that's just admin. That's my 90% admin point. That's like a rainy day in January on a Sunday afternoon, get the documentation out, figure it out, read my book, and then, and then make sure it's invested in the right stuff based on your age and stuff like that. Yeah, exa exactly that. So like you say, you can have your, like I had my ISA sitting there for my saving for my deposit, but equally now I've got my property. I'm just putting money from, uh, like you say, a direct debit, really easy, really simple, admin free. Yeah. Well, initial one day of admin and then it was done. It then goes in 10, 15% per month into that. And it goes into a number of funds within that allocation. And like you say, that choosing of which funds those are is such a tiny part of this it's actually yeah, all although, about... although it's also the most bewildering part because to go to the earlier point there are thousands of them available so and that's what i try to help people navigate to the kind of like the most obvious and simple ones like you know the ford mondeo not the kona's egg you know I mean, that, that's probably another bad analogy because people probably want the kona's egg right but but um just to, just quickly on cash ices the other thing about cash ices is in a real inflation environment where real inflation is definitely higher than 2%, right? If it, and, and interest rates are 1%, cash ices are just guaranteeing that you're losing wealth. This is another point about the elastic rule, right? People are like, oh yeah, I'm saving money in cash ices. Yeah, but you're destroying one or 2% of your real wealth every year and you will get poorer and poorer and poorer. And it is a national scandal. I've had a few entanglements with journalists on Twitter who are like, oh, 
you're so irresponsible suggesting people, you know, stock market investments risky. It's like, yeah, it is. Unless you take account of things like 100 minus your age, you know what you're doing, you basically understand volatility. Yeah, like anything else, if you got in a car and try to drive on a motorway before you actually knew how to drive the car, you'd probably have quite a high chance of crashing. And that is what most people do when it comes to their finances. Like if you, if you want to go out and invest in stock market investments or crypto or trading, before you actually know your ass from your elbow, you will probably get hurt. Yeah. If you actually do know your ass from your elbow, there's a really good chance that you can steadily, slowly and surely build really significant wealth. You know, when we talk about kind volatility, of Andrew, like I, I, I looked at my account on my H&L account in March when the coronavirus struck and it plummeted. Yeah. Now, having thankfully uh, a fairly good grasp, I just stayed in. I just didn't, I didn't touch anything. Did you read my what now email that I sent out in March? I, was, I wasn't aware of you in March. I'm, no, that's a shame. Have a look. So in the opinion bit of paying English finance, you can see what well, I've de dealt with all of these sorts of questions over the last five years. There's loads of, you know, I yeah. would flatter myself. So there's loads of, and that, you know, you don't have to buy my book to get that. That's all there for free. And it's, it's loads of essays on all this sort of stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, then that, sorry, that was, whilst we're discussing this again to the admin point, uh, what big, big theme that I come back to time and time again, I made in that what now piece when, and there was that big crash is if you automate your monthly payments and you only change things roughly every five years based on that 100 minus your age so now i'm now i'm 35 it's 65 30 you know or whatever um you, you know it's gone 70 30 65 35 60 40 aggressive, aggressive defensive, defensive yeah. and you only have to bother to do it once every five years which means you have to mess about reading bloomberg or the ft or you know you just Set up something sensible. Now, the really important thing is if you're automating, exactly as you just said, and when a crash happens, you go like this, you know, like an immature eight-year-old, go la, 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 la. If you do that, the, the, there's tons of evidence that your investment returns will be significantly higher than people who go, oh, shit, Trump's lost the election, or, you know, look, there's a coronavirus crash, everyone's selling, and, and, and then they try to take ownership of their, their own um investments they try to time the market invariably they sell at completely wrong price even worse than that of course as you know the s p got down to i don't know the low 2000s then it's now <laughs> 3400 or wherever it closed yesterday i don't know yeah um, but it, but you know what then happens is you've sold out you've crystallized a 30 percent loss or whatever you have you so you're licking your wounds your 10 grand's now seven grand and then you're looking at the market and it goes up five percent goes up five percent goes up five percent and you're going well now it's gone up too much surely you know and if you this is the time and time again, anybody who tells you that you can time the market, unless, you, unless you're a massively advanced student of fundamental valuation and technical uh, trading stuff, you will not, you will get it wrong. And there's a great stat, the S&P 500, and the S, which has only existed since 1957, the S&P goes back to 18, 1897. Yep. Um, that, that market has averaged 9% annual returns since it existed in the late 1890s, right? Um, but the average investor investing in American NXTs has done 5%. So what I'm talking about has sliced 4% per annum of people's ability to make money. Now, if you, if you own 4% less over 30, 20 or 30 years of your lifetime from, let's say, 30 to 60, that is the difference between quite a few million quid and a few hundred grand. Because yeah. that's, how, that's how compounding works. It goes like that, right? Or do it the other way around, okay? <laughs> Walk like an Egyptian, um, but um, that's that's the difference. It's it's just massive, and like all the charts that I provide in my book bear that out. Like I give the tables of the difference between being a saver at zero percent 
and then you know making sort of six eight ten twelve and even twenty percent um you know and there are ways and means of making twenty percent but it's not easy and you should only do it with that aggressive bit of your investments right like you say people panicked in march and pulled out and like you say what to do what what now the answer is like you say put your fingers in your ears and just ride it out and yeah. i can tell you right now that 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 uh, stocks and shares ISA that i've got there its percentage is considerably higher now than it was in march because i just yeah. waited i just kept yeah. doing my 10 percent a month kept going into it and nothing and nothing bad happened and i just well, wait I, and I'll but, but also, but, but also the, the inevitability of investing every month without fail by direct debit is that when the market crashed you bought it 30 percent lower Yep. Everything you owned, and if you were, if you were in a sort of a tech fund or something, you probably bought it fifty percent lower, right? So, so investing every month smooths out volatility and it reduces your volatility. And also, you can get on with having fun. You can go to the gym, you can go to the pub, you can you know go and see your family. You don't need to be. I just I feel I'm always just feel it's so tragic watching these kind of trading groups and people sitting around on screens on a Sunday when their kids you know the kids are crying for mummy or daddy in the background. They're just sitting there arsing around with i mean that's fine i would say that the sort of thing that we teach is something that everyone should do as i said and once you've got it set up and you've been here for a few years you're a little bit older you earn a bit more money let's say you're now in your 40s and you're making quite a lot of money because you've been so here's the other point which is much more likely to happen if you spend the hours on your day job rather than trading right if you spend a lot of your 20s pissing around spending hours each week trying to analyze charts and following crypto groups you're probably not as focused on your main role as you should be, and you're likely to be, not be the person who gets promoted and gets up the greasy pole. That that might sound like a pretty unpleasant and you know boring old man thing to say, but it's true, right? And I think a lot of people, you know, me, me included, in your twenties, it's quite hard to really credit just how much better paid you might be by the time you're in your forties. Like most careers, you know, most sensible careers, and so. So you kind of think, well, I want to make my money now. And, you, you know, the other, the other thing is psychologically, there's a quite a lot of, there's quite a body of evidence in, in, in psychology that one of the biggest problems that we confront as savers is that if you're 28 and you think about yourself as a 58 year old, that person is as much of a stranger to you that you've got no interest in as a 58 year old person walking past you on the street. So why are you going to sacrifice stuff now in order for them to have a better life, right? But that, that, that's just a human, that's human nature. You've got, you've got to try and do that. Um, now, there was something else I was going to say, and I've, I've lost my thread, but I'm sure you'll pull me back from my rabbiting on. Yeah, I've got a couple, couple areas I wanted to cover with you before we close up, Andrew, and that is with regards to commodities. So you speak about gold within the book, and that's actually one area that I've found more difficult to action just based yeah. on uh, the physical nature of it. Can you yeah. speak to the listeners a little bit around, first of all, why gold? Although I'm sure they'll appreciate that as soon as you explain the inflation element, yeah. but also maybe how somebody can take that step. So gold has held value for 5,000 years, right? It's, uh, there's a great line about it. So gold at the moment is $1,900 an ounce or thereabouts, which basically buys you a really flash suit, right? Or a really nice Gucci dress or whatever. And in uh, 20 AD in the Roman Forum, uh, one ounce of gold would have bought you a really nice toga, right? And so, you know, 2,000 years has basically held its purchasing power. And in that time, hundreds of currencies have gone to zero. Hundreds, right? Pretty much every theoretical fiat currency in history has become worthless, right? Because it's usually tacked onto an empire and they fail and their currency becomes worthless. So if you're a student of history, there are loads of examples of that. 
So that's so that, so gold is a preserver of value. Now, what to go back to the inflation point? If you look at um, I can't remember. Do I use goldprice.org or goldmoney.org? One of them. They have a great table. Uh, you can find it in lots of. There, there are pieces on the opinion section of my website on how to buy gold and why gold. By the way, um, but basically, gold in in GBP in pounds sterling has done something like fourteen percent annualized for the last fifteen years. Not many people know that, right? Um, and it's it's a bit more complicated than that, but, but again, this goes to why you should buy it every month because it peaked in 2011 at roughly the price it's at now. So if you just bought in 2011, you wouldn't be up 14% annualized, but if you buy it every month, you'll be smoothed in. But what, the other thing about gold is basically whenever supply of something is limited and demand for something is growing, the price, all other things being equal, has to go up, right? It takes 200 tons of rock in order to mine enough gold to make a wedding ring, right? Now, in South Africa, the biggest gold mines in the world are like now dug to depths of like three kilometers. It's insane. Unless these crazy guys like Elon Musk and Peter Diamandis actually figure out how to mine gold off asteroids, which I suspect is quite a few years away. The supply of gold is very, very constrained. And the demand for gold from central banks, from China, from Russia, from Turkey, from Nigeria, from Switzerland is going up, right? So all other things being equal, it should go up. There's another thing though, because gold is denominated in fiat currencies. And if the supply of pounds or dollars or yen or euros is going up and, the, and the, the amount of gold is fixed, then denominated in those currencies, it goes up. So that's basically why gold is up 14% in pound terms over the last 15 years. So that's why you buy gold and it's okay. my, but yeah, now how? So again, yeah, commercial sales pitch, but this stuff's all freely available on my website, by the way. But the, so the appendix of this book is how to, is basically, um, how precious metals owning inflation and then it's the, the ways of different doing it so there are like a lot of things in finance there are lots of different ways of skinning the cat you can buy it in a trading account in your isa by buying a thing called an etf an exchange traded fund and you can buy a gold etf automatically every month and only pay one pound fifty commission um that has its pluses and minuses you can buy physical coins or ingots an ingot is quite a lot of money obviously and store them in the bottom of your cat litter or you know dig a hole in your garden if you've got one or whatever um you then there's a company called bullion vault where you can just open an account with them and they will buy physical gold for you and store it for you which yep. costs a little bit each month um so but that's all covered so if people go on the opinion so plainenglishfinance.com or plainenglishfinance.co.uk and click on the opinion button and just scroll back a couple of years which only it's like you only have to click the back button like three times because it's you know 10 articles on each page yep. you'll find a um the first piece is called which asset class has averaged 12.3 percent for the last 20 years or something which is what it was averaging when i wrote the piece the next two are how to buy gold one and how to buy gold two yeah just just on the gold the what i initially looked to do when i read your book was could i get a safe in the flat and could i buy a certain percentage and i thought it's not worth the hassle yeah. i mean it is worth the hassle but it's also a lot of hassle whereas yeah. this whole approach is about minimal administration and minimal minimal challenges yeah. so instead i managed to find a fund that it may or may not be managed by yourself that has an element of gold built into it so um... <laughs> <laughs> well our maximum exposure to gold is two and a half percent and to, to industrial metals is two and a half percent so yeah have a look at bullion vault if you've if you've got but this is all covered in live on less invest the rest because what i do is i give a table of Basically, depending on how much you have to invest each month, having done your calculations and depending on what you earn and stuff, um, there's a table that gives you a suggested allocation to, hang on, let me just, 
there you go it's a very pretty table i don't even see that but that's basically you're like watching on youtube that. we've got some great graphics here <laughs> okay yeah, excellent but yeah um that's isa um cash um, and potentially gold and it explains kind of how to do that but well, that's all in there um and i think the, the the last question to take us home and i know exactly what you're going to say here uh, how much do i need to have saved already to start investing <laughs> nothing zero so i mean my answer i've written this is in that book and also so quite a lot of that new book is it's kind of like i've stitched together a whole bunch of my email content as i say it's freely available on the so you don't have to buy the book i mean it's, the book's obviously more organized and a better place to go clearly but but um the the number of times i get emails from people i get you know now because my book sold quite a few copies um and we've got like more than 10,000 email subscribers growing in quite a few a month and all that good stuff i get dozens of people getting in touch every month going Loved your book. Thanks so much. Great information. My wife and I are thinking of investing, but we're worried about, you know, two years ago, refugees in Syria, Libya, Fukushima, um, Trump, Brexit. I mean, whatever. There's every single month of every single year, ever since journalism was in, in, invented, there is a reason not to invest. Okay. And the biggest problem is that people pay attention to that and then they don't invest. And so, and so people say, when is the right time for me to invest? And my answer is always, now <laughs> and you know and as long as you're taking account of 100 minus your age you appropriately position your, your, what you're saving and investing into aggressive versus defensive and you're doing it every month so that you're smoothing your average in price into the right sort of assets and you do that until such time as you have a million quid or whatever it, the answer is now every month forever from now on without and, and what well, you skirted around this earlier but it's worth just really explicitly staying about the automation well, we did, well, I made the point about 9% versus 5%, right? Yep. Ignore the news. Never, ever. With trading, you have to be really cognizant of the news with trading. But, but with investing, you must absolutely just don't pay any attention to it. Set up the appropriate sorts of assets, 10% a month. And as you get, I mean, the other point of it is as you get older and you get paid more, you should try and then bump that up to 15%, 20%, 25%, 30%, right? If you can. You know, I sort of make the point that somebody works at a law firm and makes a partner, you know, they're now paid a hell of a lot of money, right? If they can resist eating caviar for breakfast and spraying themselves in champagne every day of the week, they should be able to save a lot more than 10% of their earnings. But equally, Andrew, when I lived at home, my percentage was considerably higher because yeah. my parents charged me a minimal amount to, for the yeah. privilege of living there. So I was able to save more into my savings yeah. for a deposit and then my investment account. And it was put me in a much stronger position. And like you say, you can adjust that as... As you get older, as you get older, you know, the, the tragedy is that most people do nothing, 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 nothing. And then when they're 45 or even 50, they go, oh shit, I haven't sorted any of this stuff out. And then, then that is, if you save literally 25 quid a month all through your 20s, by the time you get to, to 45, you, it, that will have turned into a lot of money. Like, you know, the, this, the power of compound interest, people don't understand just how powerful it is. Exactly. I think today's conversation has been a real call to action to people as well as giving them direction in terms of where they can go to do that in a sensible way. It's been a strong message of the benefits of investing over trading. It's particularly yeah. for the people that listen to this are extremely busy with high goals across a number of different areas, career, business, fitness, yeah. Andrew, where is the website address? Plainenglishfinance.com? Yeah, www. Uh, although apparently you're not supposed to say that anymore. I'm obviously really old. Um, www. 
plainenglish.co.uk, sorry, plainenglishfinance.co.uk or plainenglishfinance.com. They both point to the same place. That'll be linked in the show notes below, as well as uh, the links to buy both How to Own the World and Live on Less, Invest the Rest books. And Andrew, it's been a pleasure to have you on. If you're still with us at this point, ladies and gents, please take a screenshot, pop it on your Instagram story, tag myself, give me your feedback. I can't wait to hear what you think. And please send this to the friend in the WhatsApp group that continually seems to have no money and is going to be a financial basket case because we don't and want then, to then they, then they can send me And then they can send me a rude email telling me that I'm full of nonsense, which happens quite a lot as well. But um, if I, just by the way, um, Instagram is the one social media thing I'm not on. Um, we do have a Facebook group. Um, it's a subscription group, but people can check that out on our website. It's called the Plainless Finance Community. It's a fiver a month. So, you know, yep. I actually think it's the best value kind of financial group in the UK, but I would say that, obviously. So we have that. And then um, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at Andy Rue Craig. There's also an at Plainless Finance UK. Um, uh, and my, I mean, I'm really happy for people to email me. It, it can take me a while to get back, but it's andrew.craig at plainenglishfinance.com. Um, so we try to be as accessible as we can. I think you know, Colin, that I've got a full-time job. I raise money for biotechs in the city still. So yep. um, at a little investment bank. Um, so that's just why that plus playing with finance keeps me pretty busy. But the last time I did one of these, I got 97 emails. Um, but I, I think I did manage to get back to all of them. It just took me about six weeks. So just so yep. people are aware. Yeah, it's been a pleasure right. to have you on, Andrew. And we'll link everything in the show notes below. And I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.